welcome to the God Trip Podcast. This is our first episode, and today we're going to be talking about the Oneida community, their free love community, their Bible communism community from the 19th century. And I'm here with Todd, my co-host. I want to tell everyone that we'll be talking about some frank sexual matters in this podcast episode, so please be aware of that and make sure that uh, there are no children around if you're concerned with that. Hi, Todd. Oh, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> Great. How are you doing? Oh, fine, fine. And you're in New Mexico, mm. right? Yeah, sitting in uh, Albuquerque. Albuquerque. I've never, mm. I've never been to Albuquerque. Only Taos and Santa Fe. Not a lot to do here. I'm in Ferndale, Michigan, which is outside of Detroit. So I'm going to talk about the guy who created the Oneida community, a small religious community that started in 1839, roughly, and ended about 40 years later. So the, the guy who started it, his name was John Humphrey Noyes. He was born in Connecticut in the United States. His mother was extremely religious. In fact, when he was born, she prayed that he would be a preacher. And he was her fourth son, or her fourth child, out of seven. And his father was a, he was a businessman and a teacher for a while. He also was a member of the House of Representatives from 1815 to 1817. And he became an alcoholic. So it's interesting that John Humphrey Noyes had one parent that was very, very religious, very spiritual and very devout, and one who was very much a hedonist because the theology that came out of him was really kind of had a lot of both of those characteristics. Yeah, what a, what an incredible background to come from. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost schizophrenic, it seems. Yeah, it is. And his parents were both very educated. I, I, I guess I have to say that, you know, I think of people in Europe at this time or other parts of the world as being very educated. But I, I think because I watched a lot of How, uh, Little House on the Prairie when I was a kid, I think of Americans at this time as being kind of simple. But he was not simple, and neither were his parents. Oh, yeah, they were like up in New England, right? Yes, exactly. Northeast. Mm-hmm. So... That was just the same sort of environment where abolitionism and temperance and all that grew out of. Right. And transcendentalism so. and peace movement, all kinds of more intellectual concerns. All right, so I'm yeah. just, just going to give some facts about him. Um, he was born in 1811, and um, he was sent to boarding school for elementary school and high school. And during that time, he was miserable. He missed his family. He wrote very sad letters home, even though he was trying to be strong. And and also he was, according to like his journals and his, mostly his journals, I guess, he was like from a very young age, he was kind of obsessed with sex and trying to conquer it. Like he thought it was a bad thing. He felt very a lot of shame and so and but at the same time he was thinking lustful thoughts a lot he called it pollution of his mind and he really wanted to conquer that so he could be closer to god and not feel so bad about himself that sounds a lot like saint augustine right he was a very devout reader of the bible and he was especially sort of obsessed with the part of Genesis where Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. 
because they feel a lot of shame while they're leaving the garden. And he could really identify with that. Oh. And he thought there, sh- there has to be some way for us to get back to the garden, to get back to where we felt we were still in God's grace. And we felt we weren't like burdened by all the shame or these pollu- polluted thoughts, lustful and polluted thoughts. So his, uh, his goal intellectually was to transcend shame. That's right. And I think to integrate his love of God and his sexual desire. Kind of a complicated guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, in the early 19th century, that would be almost impossible. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but he found a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a complex way. <laughs> right. Um, so he went to Dartmouth for his bachelor's degree, and he studied law. But while he was there, he he just... He found himself obsessed with religious matters and obsessed with the Bible and not really interested in law. He wrote in his diary um, that he, his heart was fixed on the millennium, meaning that he just kept thinking about being reunited with Jesus Christ and being close to God. Like He wanted the end times to come so that he could be close to God and Jesus. And he phrased that as his heart was fixed on the millennium. So when he got his bachelor's degree, and he left Dartmouth. Uh, he decided to go to theological school, and he went to Andover, and uh, he hated it because he felt like the students, his you know, his co-students were jokers and goofballs, and all they wanted to do was party. <laughs> so, And he was, you know, a more serious person, and he was on this um, path to try to reconcile his love for God and his and to get rid of his shameful feelings. While he was there, he he decided to quit and go to Yale because he felt like the students at Yale and the faculty at Yale were more serious about their faith. Um so he went to Yale. His main focus was studying the Bible and practicing preaching. Huh. I was wondering what age he was at this point. Is he like normal? What college age would be now? Um, okay, look. So I think it was about 1938 when he his second year at Yale. I think was 1938. So okay. that would have been a little older then. Yeah, like 27. Wow. Like that. While he was at Yale, he started to have revelations, which in his Basically, he was having, he felt like God was talking to him, and he was experiencing God's presence very powerfully and very much in a sensory way. Um, I, will, I will read some quotes about that. Um, he said, Three times in quick succession, a stream of eternal love gushed through my heart and rolled back against its source. Joy unspeakable and full of glory filled my soul. All fear and doubt and condemnation passed away. I knew that my heart was clean and that the Father and Son had come and made it their abode. So he felt like he felt washed clean of the polluted images and also of his sh- all that shame. He just it just went away. Mm-hmm. This is his big religious experience then. Yes. Mm hmm. And uh, his first one, is to say. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. Um, I mean, he, he was a faithful person, and he was, obviously, he was in theological school. But this was the first time that really he felt God reached out to him, and he had, a, like, an ecstatic experience of spirituality. Yeah, I know that Yale was probably juggling some cutting-edge theological matters at the time. But on the other hand, I'm not sure how they'd look on some guy tripping out in the middle of them, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, totally different matter. Yeah. Um, Good point. And in, in, in fact, he he started to, his, his theological um, understanding started to evolve. And mm-hmm. he got to the point where he, he's, at, through his reading of the Bible, he came to the idea that, the second coming of Christ happened in 70 AD when the temple um, the temple was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And he thought that was when Jesus came back. And so then there was a thousand years, the millennium, from 70 AD to 1070, where um, there was chaos on earth and all of the bad things and revelations happened. And so... After 1070, we were beyond that. And in his mind and his understanding from his readings, we were already basically kind of like in heaven. Like we're still on mm-hmm. earth, but we're in, we're in God's grace. And because we're in God's grace, we can't sin because everything we do is in God's grace. He thought that if he listened to his intuition and, you know, his, like, held on to his closely, held his faith close to his heart and his understanding that he was already in heaven and followed his intuition, which he felt like was God directing him, that he couldn't sin. No matter what he did, it was fine. Yeah, I've been trying to think. Um, I know a lot of apocalyptic cults, particularly in that time period, but I can't think of any that thought there was a post-apocalyptic cult, you know? <laughs> right. And uh, that, that seems like, to me, like it's almost a unique perspective. I think so. Go ahead. Even, say, Mormonism. Mm-hmm. You know, they uh, stock up <laughs> uh, uh, basically doomsday preppers. Right. But with them and his perspective, it just seems like, <laughs> well, it's already happened. We can't sin because this is after the apocalypse. It's it's a convenient theology. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, I think it, it is convenient, but I also think that, at least from what I've read, he was deeply believed this, and like especially because he had this revelation where God came to him and covered him in his grace three times and all that stuff. Like he, mm-hmm. it, it's, it sounds convenient, but I think he really believed it. Um, and it, it definitely cleared up all of his conflicting issues about uh, feeling guilt and feeling like his thoughts were polluted and all that kind of stuff. So he, he started feeling fantastic and feeling like he was free of sin. And he also, I think wanted to bring you know, everyone into his understanding so that they could be unshackled from sin and unshackled from shame and guilt and everything. His mentor at at, at Yale was, I don't, I'm not, I don't know what his name was, but I think his name was Nathaniel Taylor. Um, yeah, Nathaniel Taylor. He was very sympathetic to noise because he was more of a spiritualist. So 
he really believed in that intuition and the feeling of ecstasy and joy that comes with being with God and that he believed that God wasn't in the Bible so much as it, it was in your heart um, or as, as noise believed, like in your solar plexus. Well, yeah, with the ecstasy thing, I mean, that's still a part of Pentecostalism. Right, it is. You know, that's still around. Yeah. Um, but I don't think those guys aren't taking it from, well, I don't think they have a very uh, complex theological answer for it, you know, whereas Noyes had a perfect system worked out in his mind. Yeah, he really, he really did. Um, he he had he had quite a a moment of satori that cleared everything up for him. So even though even though his mentor Nathaniel Taylor, who I'm guessing was like a professor a professor at Yale, um, even though they were kind of sympathetic to his, to each other's interpretation of the gospel for for most for the most part, Nathaniel Taylor did not think that he was above sinning or that he was in some kind of perfect state of grace. So. Um, Noyes decided to question him, and he questioned him very aggressively. Basically, he said, he accused him of being of the devil if he was sinning. He said, if you, you know, are you a sinner? And Taylor said, yes, you know. And Noyes said, well, if you're a sinner, then you're of the devil. And uh, Taylor didn't like that at all. Um, And he went back and forth and said, there's some quotes here. Um, Noise said, he that committeth sin is of the devil. Um, you say that you're of the devil. Are you of the devil? And Taylor was like, no, I'm not of the devil. And and then Noise was like, he just kept saying, he that committeth sin is of the devil. You admit that you commit sin, then you're of the devil. He kept rolling down this road, and, and Taylor did not like it. Eventually... Be- through Taylor, Noyes' uh, minister's license was revoked. Uh, they thought he was a madman, and he they didn't they did not approve of his ideas at all. He actually said something really funny when people said, "How can you?" Because he continued to preach and and be a minister, he left Yale and he went to Putney, where he started his first community. But people outside of the community would say. You know, how can you preach when they took away your minister's license? And he would say, um, well, I took their license to sin away, but they continue to sin. <laughs> so uh, it seemed like a very clever response. Yeah, it's, it's almost, uh, I can't quite figure out how he's justifying this. with saying, I'm perfect, so I can do things that are conventionally considered sinning or uh do you know? Do you follow me? Yes. And uh, so he's calling the Taylor fellow a sinner, and it seems like that the unspoken implication there is that noise is perfect and Taylor's not, and that's what separates them. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think for him it was a matter of faith. If you didn't believe that you were perfect and that everything you did was like fine under the eyes of God, then you weren't. Anyway, so. Around the time that he got kicked out of Yale and lost his minister's license, he kind of went on this religious binge in a way. Like, he wouldn't eat or sleep, which sounds a lot like mania. And he tried to minister to the prostitutes on the street, and he tried to minister to the drunk. Kind of went a little bit crazy. 
Yeah, like I, as I like to point out in the film Gangs in New York, this is the that's the exact place he was at the exact time. <laughs> that's wild. You know? that's so it was it was a bit mad to begin with. Basically, he's he's somebody who's a bit mad himself, who's walked into a place where that's perfectly normal. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> True. And then he had his uh, next revelation at that point in time. He saw he had a girlfriend who had married someone else. He he saw her like he had he had like he saw visions of things that weren't there. Like he saw her and then she turned into the devil and then he turned into the devil like he he was Lucifer. Anyway, there were all, there was a lot of craziness with visions, which I think most people would probably have if they weren't eating or sleeping for 5 days. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've always, I've read in one or two places he'd taken to drinking because in his theology, that was no longer sinning if you're perfect, I guess. Right. Makes sense. That's what I was referring to. Okay. Uh, with his, his revelation. That's, that's the wrong word. Uh, supernatural experiences or whatever might be a better term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had lots of supernatural experiences. He spent some time there kind of going crazy and drinking and and trying to evangelize people and kind of having sort of, like he described it as like his, when Jesus was in the desert and the devil yeah. was the devil was tempting him he felt that this was his time in the desert and the devil was tempting him and he came out of it a lot of and a lot of it was spurred on by his rejection from this girlfriend who he intended to marry and he his mind was just completely broken by the idea that she married someone else so he started to think that how could that be um how could how could she be married to someone else she's my wife you know this just makes no sense at all like he was very very heartbroken and upset her name was Caroline. He came to a passage in the Bible that I think you you have uh, you have a copy of that in front of you. His biblical justification yeah. for group marriage. Mm-hmm. A Sadducee poses Jesus with a uh, a theological problem of uh, if a man if a man is married uh, or if a woman is married if somebody is married to multiple people over the course of their life. Which one are they married to in heaven? And Christ basically answers, there is no marriage in heaven. Right. And, and uh, that was his justification, I guess, for multiple, for the group marriage thing. Right. So so he, this gave him, so he thought, well, if we're already in heaven, if we're already back in paradise, even though we're still on earth, and there's no marriage, then... I guess what he decided was then we're all married. Like we're all brothers and sisters and we're all married. That way yeah. he, that way he could he, this Caroline could be married to someone else but also be married to him. He he was very intellectual. I read this book that he wrote. It was all about socialism in America. History of American socialisms, plural, because every chapter was about like a different community that tried to have a socialized community uh, mm-hmm. tried to live in a social way socialist way and it's, it's a very interesting book and he, he totally analyzes each one economically he has a very economical mind so he thinks about energy a lot and spiritual energy but he thinks about it 
in tr- almost the way other people think about money. He thinks about well, it, the exchange of it and the the currency of it. It's a very interesting book. But so he starts to think about how you could have a society where no one's married, but everyone's married, kind of. Basically, he started to think about this idea of something called Bible socialism. Or no, I'm sorry, Bible communism. And he started his first community like this in Putney, which was where this old girlfriend lived. She was married to someone else, and she wouldn't have anything to do with him, but... He got some other people, including members of his family and other other people, to kind of see his way of thinking. And he started this Bible school that drew people in. And he was very charismatic. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that a lot of people go through that whole unrequited love mm-hmm. torture bit, you know, and they deal with it different ways. Uh, Alcohol is popular. Um it's almost like he has a psychology of a stalker without the stalking. <laughs> right. And he channels that into a theology, theological framework. You know, that's uh, odd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, he starts practicing what he calls free love in this town. And he gets people, other people involved. Let me just describe, let me tell you what free love means to him because... People accused him of being just like somebody who wanted to have sex with whoever he wanted with no responsibility and that he was right. that he was kind of spreading an idea that was really exploitive and terrible but he he took great offense to that and he believed that there was a lot of responsibility in this so he described free love as the exchange of divine energy that passes from person to person. And he said that there are many ways that you could pass this divine energy. And one of the ways was through sex. He believed that possessiveness and jealousy blocked the divine flow of energy. So to him, those were some of the worst things. Like possessiveness and jealousy were things that really took you away from God. He thought that sex should be consensual, communal, documented, regulated, and spiritual. So he had some strange ideas about it. And I think it's strange for the context. I mean, to me, there's so many points of this sound like things that I would have heard from uh, various Indian cults. Oh, okay. Interesting. Like tantric with the divine energy and all that. Uh, you put a Sanskrit word around that, and it would sound uh, it would sound Asian, you know. Very true. And, hmm. Yeah, very true. I, I see what yeah. you, I see what you mean. So anyway, so at Putney, um, people the people in the town who were not into his Bible school or his community that he was creating, they accused him of adultery. He he actually got married legally to a woman. I I didn't mention that, but actually I should because this is an important part of his creation of theology. Um, so he did. He married this woman named Harriet, who very much understood things the same way he did. They were very religious and spiritual in the same way, and she completely got on board with most of his ideas, including the free love and everything. So they were pretty happy together. Except that she started ha- getting pregnant. She had four miscarriages in a row. And I don't know any of the details, but um, 
from his writings, I think it was an extremely painful and upsetting, uh, traumatizing experience for both of them. Um, and so it, it could very well have been very long pregnancies that didn't make it, which I think, you know, I've, I've had friends who have gone through that and it's a very traumatizing experience. It takes them, maybe they never get over it, but. Oh yeah. I know. I know people who happened to 20 years ago who still think of the miscarriage as if it was a child. Right. You know, so he, so I think he felt very guilty that he felt terrible. He was traumatized and very upset, but also I think he was even more like, feeling like he was responsible for, for putting his wife through this completely nightmarish, nightmarish situation. Her name was Harriet. After they were together for, I think, just a few years, they decided to live apart. And he wrote in his journal that after they separated, they were never so happy. <laughs> that he, uh. Like he'd never seen her so happy and he never felt as happy uh, as when they were living apart. So they still loved each other, but they were they were happy to be away from each other. <laughs> yeah, I, I I know a few couples like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I I definitely understand that feeling, and I basically what my my theory is is that um, because of his guilt about all these miscarriages, he decided that reproduction was a very dangerous thing. Um, and that it should be, that it was necessary. He wasn't exactly a shaker. Like the shakers, they right. they died out because they stopped reproducing completely. But he thought that it should be very much a deliberate decision. That no one should get pregnant by mistake. And that it should be very much thought out. And that leads to a very strange part of his Another, I should say, strange part about his community and his the rules of his community. Anyway, I, I should get back to it. So he got kicked out of Putney because he was accused of adultery. Because he was married to Harriet, but he was having uh, relations with other members of his community. And the people who weren't in his Bible group thought that was adultery. And they, and you, I guess you could go to court and bring someone to court on adultery charges. So he left that. He left. Putney and he went to Oneida um, and Oneida is where he, he built up his community that became very well known he had satellite communities in four other other towns as this went on but Oneida was where he really developed his ideas and put them in practice what I was talking about, uh, about not having children one of the main tenets of his free love community was that men should never, they should never ejaculate while they're having sex. Everyone can be having sex all the time. And as long as it's consensual and no one's getting jealous, that's great. But men could not ejaculate because he, I have a really weird quote from him about that. And he didn't want people to get pregnant, but he also said this. Foolish and cruel to expel one's seed on a wife merely for the sake of getting rid of it, as it would be to fire a gun at a best friend simply to unload it. <laughs> so. Good. Well, this is yet another thing that sounds like he's picked it up from Tantra. Yeah. There, yeah, there are various Tantric sects, uh, S-E-C-T-S, that uh, practice that. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, that whole idea of expelling energy. And he and I mean, I think a huge I think maybe his main point was people shouldn't be getting uh people shouldn't be getting pregnant just willy-nilly because they feel like having sex. So, mm. um also he believed that men who that when men ejaculated, they lost their energy, a lot of their of their divine energy. And so he mm-hmm. he was against masturbation and he was against ejaculation. And I think he like the masturbation thing. I had to think a lot about that because it seemed really weird. Like, like why would you care if people are masturbating or men are masturbating rather? And I real yeah. I realized that for him everything was about the community. And masturbating is not about the community. It's about the individual. Oh, it's selfish. Yeah, yeah. So right. it wasn't spiritual. It wasn't like a part of his paradise on earth. So basically, he his edict was that men and women can have sex as much as they want as long as it's consensual and um, it's not like a erotic love where you they're possessive and they can't let go of each other as long as they're just you know two members of the community enjoying it. He considered it like a friendly act, like a, an act of friendship basically. And also he thought that women should orgasm as much as they wanted to that he thought that men lost energy from orgasms and that women gained energy from orgasms. Muhammad Ali thought the same thing, but that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's that that whole thing about uh, pair bonding being extremely discouraged. Uh, they had a derisive term for it called special love, and they considered special love to be anti-communal. I guess it's a good word. Right. Right. And. Uh, I can see young people having a problem with that. Yeah. But it's, oh, I don't know. It's a, I can't, I'm still trying to get my head around why people basically bought into his theology. Because to me, when we said, here and talk about this. It seems like he's making it up as he goes. <laughs> I, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. But he he believed that these were all messages from God, you know, and yeah. and and I think he was very charismatic and very passionate about his faith and his his ability to discern God's message. So. I think he, you know, when people are that confident and that passionate, I think he truly believed that he was getting God's word. Other people are like excited and they want to be they want to go along with it, you know. And probably yeah. and this is such a different way of thinking than the people of, you know, New England at the time that that probably just was really attractive to people. It was so exotic. I remember a few years ago I was in a studying the medieval Catholic Church and the Inquisition, the professor said, uh, here in the 21st century, we're all cynical about everything. And we see this as a, uh, these people as behaving this way because they want control or power or land or money. But our cynicism in the 21st century overlooks the fact that they may have thought that way, but that doesn't mean they actually didn't believe what they were doing. 
Do you know what I mean? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And so we can look on him as a demagogue, I mean, anything from a demagogue to dirty old man, but that doesn't mean he didn't believe what he was doing. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he had sincere intentions, especially in the beginning. Yeah. Like a lot of religious leaders <laughs> they they yeah, they start yeah. out with very pure hearts and ideas that they're really they just want to get closer to God and help other people get closer to God but they get you know they get a lot of power in the position they're in and then that that's where they lose their way yeah but still subjectively they think that they're just in the same Following the same spiritual trajectory. Yeah. Um, I don't know. For some reason, Falwell popped into my head there. I don't know why. It's going to take hours to get an image out of my head. <laughs> but um, I have that image of him crying on television in my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so he he had this group that believed in this free love and the exchange of divine energy and it's all it's interesting because like i said before he was very smart and he was very much uh thought about things in an economical way and so his the ideas that he had about work were very similar to his ideas about sex they were actually very interesting to me i like i like his labor ideas he thought that labor should be and could be energizing. It should be non-compulsory. So, you know, you should get to pick what you want to do and when you want to do it. Um, he thought that men and women should do the whatever they want, that there weren't, like, jobs that were just for men or jobs that were just for women. He very much promoted that the group work on things together, come together and work together so that there's a really good feeling about it. Like you're not just trudging off alone to work hard, you know, work your fingers to the bone, but you're with your whole community and you're, you know, having a great time together while you're getting work done. And he believed that move from one job to the other. Like today you feel like picking strawberries with the group that's going out and picking strawberries. But tomorrow you might go to the place where they're making, they're building animal traps or they're spinning silk thread or, the, you know, there there were many different ways of working on in their community and you were allowed to choose what you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. So there was a lot of freedom involved. It, it, just, it led to a degree of emancipation for Victorian women. Yes, definitely. And uh, I'm... I'm a bit skeptical about how long that would last in the real world. You know, I mean, I would imagine with community pressure, uh, you wouldn't have one guy who, for some reason, uh, just never seemed to do anything strenuous, you know. <laughs> or uh, right. if it's really hot outside, who's going to go out and pick the vegetables, that kind of thing. Right. I'm sure there was enough community pressure to make it fairly egalitarian. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that the community pressure was a really big deal. And in fact, one of the things I read, which made the whole um, men, it's called male inc- male continence when male men men wouldn't ejaculate while they were having sex. Yeah. That 
the reason why they got men to do that, because I was thinking like, what would be the incentive or how do you get men to go, go along with that? Um, I guess there was a ton of social pressure. And if you didn't go along with it, if you were known to not go along with it, if you were a man and you were ejaculating while you were having sex, members of the community, um, there was public disapproval and private rejection. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of societal pressure. In, it was a small group, you know, relatively. And I think that you probably w- couldn't get away with just sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that would work in a large the state economy or something like that. But it would in a small, you know, rural commune, as I could see it. Yeah. Functioning pretty well. Oh. I I agree. And I, I kind of like my opinion is that like I think Amer- I think not Americans, but I think humans just do better in small groups. Like once we're yeah. once we're in a giant group in a big city and we're kind of anonymous and we can do whatever we want and um things get out of hand, you know. People are not like doing what's best for the community anymore. They're they're getting they're seeing what they can get away with. Yeah, it's uh, we're tribal animals, you know, and yeah. you know, a couple dozen people is what our brains are hardwired for, Maybe. and that's just the same thing happened to Rome. Uh, as cities grew, community spirit dropped, and. Uh, but in a sense, like the Oneida communities, I mean, I would think that could go on forever. Right. And, uh, yeah. I mean, the Amish do something like that, so. Right, it's true. I, you, know, you don't think of the Amish as like there's somebody's lazy uncle. <laughs> yeah, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think like everybody's involved in, you know, because you have to be, too. Like, if you're if you want to eat, you've got to make sure that there's crops and I don't know. I'm such a yeah. 20th century or 21st century person. It's I don't even really know what it's like to be in that kind of community. But I I do kind of think that if you are, then you are you have no choice but to kind of follow the rules. And if you don't, then you're going to pay a big price. I was wondering, ostracism is sort of traditionally a punishment. It'll Right. Universally speaking. And I'm wondering how serious they felt that was felt by them. You know, how much weight ostracism carried. Because like we were talking, you know, if you're a guy who uh, is going to continue to ejaculate, eventually you're going to get farmed out, you know. Right. But in the context of mid-19th century New York, if you got kicked out of one cult, you just get down the road and get into another cult. You know? <laughs> right. Um, I don't see how much of a threat that would be. Um, unless you're really enjoying yourself. <laughs> unless, yeah, you, unless yeah. I mean, if you are like a person with strong, you know, community relationships, it's like your ex- big extended family. Then I think like they're everything to you. Yeah, that's what I was I was thinking about the family analogy. It's like a big, big extended family. Yeah. Did they use that language? Oh, definitely, so, definitely. Uh, even even long after they had stopped being what they were, 
in the 19th century, but they still were a family in a way. Like in the 1920s, Harding came yeah. came to the community and um, he was talking to one of the children. There was a nativity scene and he pointed to Jesus, baby Jesus, and he said, who's that? And the little girl said, that's cousin Jesus. So they, uh, e- even in the 1920s, like 40 40 years after it had stopped being what what it once was, they still had that idea of the Christian family. Yeah, I, I know in the early church, though, Christians would get uh, accused of incest all the time because they called each other brother and sister. Right, right. Uh, I mean, it's, it sounds dumb, but that's literally what happened, you know. And and they also got uh, they got accused of being um, cannibals, too. Because they ate the flesh and blood of Christ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, and, uh, and they talk about it well, it's in the, in that sort of terms and all. Right. And uh, they had to, they had to completely rearrange the religious service because the communion part was tending to get people a little hammered before the actual ritual parts happened. Oh wow! So, so they reversed it all. And uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I forget. Yeah, in the early church, communion and dinner were the first things. Ah, oh, interesting. And then they, they, a hundred or two years, they they shifted it to the back a little bit. And makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it makes sense. It's, it makes sense that like they wouldn't want you to get too drunk right up front. Yeah, and the, and the meal too. The meal was kind of a. The focus. It was like a, a big banquet every Sunday. That's nice. Uh, and uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but there was also with those guys. There was the, they used the family imagery as well, mm-hmm. which uh, I don't really. Outside of Christianity, I can't think of any other religions that do that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. But yeah, and speaking of incest, that's a an interesting point to bring up because in the Oneida community, John Humphrey Noyes said that because we are all brothers and sisters, that there should not be any incest taboo. And he believed that it was fine for sisters and brothers to have sex. Um, There is no actual record of that happening. It never happened. Because I think the people were too close to the taboo of that. So that that never happened. But they did have uncles and nieces having sex and aunts and nephews. Wow. Yeah. So there was incest. I was was wondering how they would deal with that. I mean, that's kind of a universal taboo. Right. With the uncles and aunts and the cousins thing. I mean, in in like royal families and all, that wouldn't be that unusual, I don't think. Yeah, that's true. Um, the royal families would do were pretty. They were, they definitely could play with that line of what's incest and what's not. Yeah, and uh, that's why royalty across Europe doesn't have a chin. Oh, and hemophilia. Yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> right. Just to finish up with their with their work with his idea about labor, um, they had some. Interesting industries going on there. They had animal trap. They would build animal traps and sell them. They were, that was a very successful industry. They would sp- 
spin silk thread. They sold a lot of that. They canned fruit and vegetables. They made leather bags and sold them. They also made uh, hats out of palm leaves. And um, they eventually got down to silverware. And the reason why they got into all these businesses was because um, John Humphrey Noyes realized in his studies that all the socialized communities that failed, that he knew about, that failed, that they tried to rely on farming alone. And he he felt like that it was the main reason that they failed was econ economic failure. And that um, you couldn't rely on farming to sustain your community. So he, he took, because they started out just farming, the Oneida community, uh, and their and their satellites they just farmed and it wasn't working so he started s realizing that there was a need for different things outside of their community that they could sell and that it, they ended up becoming very very successful um, and eventually they got famous for their silverware and the silverware they made became the focus of their the focus of their business yeah it's uh it's an odd phenomenon when I bring them up to people. That's instantly the thing that pops into their mind, and they rarely know that it goes deeper than that. Yeah, I didn't. But, I was surprised. Well, I just I live a weird life, so I know about I knew about the cold aspect, and I have no clue about the silverware aspect. <laughs> so that's awesome. <laughs> so. Um, so they were very successful, and they eventually started to have to hire people outside of their community to work in their industries. The people inside the community, they had kind of a wonderful situation where they were, at the most, they would work five hours a day. They would spend a lot of time reading and playing music and making art, uh, reading the Bible and praying and having sex with each other. So really, hardly anyone ever worked more than five hours a day in their community. And that was a very much a secure part of John Humphrey Noyes' idea about uh, labor being this energizing, wonderful sacrament and not a horrible thing, but a beautiful, great thing for the community. But he didn't have any problem with having the outsiders work 12 to 14 hours a day. So once well, they... <laughs> Once they got to the point where they needed help, they basically exploited people the way that they wouldn't exploit their own community. Well, I mean, from his, I'm not, I'm not saying that's right, but from his perspective, they weren't perfect, so you can do what you want to them, I imagine. I guess, you know? yeah. True. He did pay them really well, though. So he paid them better than most. Uh, they could make more money in the Oneida um, industries than they could anywhere else. So the communities around them loved them because they could they could support their families working for them. So huh. they that's why they got a, away with having this free love community for so long. When most most cults or what I I don't know even know if you'd call this a cult, but most weird religious organizations wouldn't last as long as as Oneida did. And that is because they were beneficial to their community. They helped people. They gave them jobs and helped them support their community. So they were, they, they, I read that they were beloved. And so nobody would give them a hard time or take them to court or challenge them. I can think of quite a few other little religious groups that 
have broader community support. The Amish, for one, but they tend to have problems with health departments. <laughs> and uh, not because they're dirty, just simply because when you live in the 19th century, you rarely are up to code, you know. <laughs> right. Makes sense. And, uh, yeah, well, I think, you know, that that's an interesting. There's a couple of interesting things, though. One that uh, he had the insight to realize they had to expand behind farming. And two, ga gathering broader community support for a group that practices group marriage <laughs> is is pretty uh, astounding feat. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Yep. It was, uh, I was thinking about the, the Krishnas in West Virginia, and that community was very divided on what they thought of them, and they were focused on dairy cattle. So they were economically tied to the community. Uh, first people I ever heard of that farmed with computers, but you know, I, I just find that very interesting how they how they manage people around the Oneida community uh, like them. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty surprising too, and and I didn't know that about the Krishnas and the dairy farms. That's very interesting. Thank you for listening to the first part of a two part episode on the Oneida community. This is the God Trip podcast. This is our very first episode, and we will be covering. Weird cults, strange religious people, and bizarre religious rituals. So please tune in and keep an eye out for part two of the Oneida episode. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.